Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Our story today comes from Chris Lovett, the founder of Less is Progress and author of a book called Discovery of Less. His platform has been created to support individuals, families, and teams be more successful with less. Chris believes that life is complex and we are always on the go. We are always consumed by countless distractions constant comparison, and too much stuff can make us lose focus on what's important. Having a minimalist mindset can help design a better lifestyle that works for you in any context of life. Remove the things that no longer add value to make room for unlocking the best version of you. This is one man's story of how he did just that. I really enjoyed this conversation, reading and discussing his book, and even taking a few detours and footpaths through a few musical throwbacks for some added joy. Enjoy the listen, and make sure to check out Chris's work at lessisprogress.com. But I would love to kind of like we were talking about when we when we first came together here. I would love to have you um, kind of introduce yourself, and again, in that power and frequency of you speaking your own name and your own and telling your own journey, um, introduce yourself. Kind of what 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 it is what you do, what we're going to talk about today, and then we'll just go from there. Sounds good, man. Yeah. So my name is Chris Lovett. I'm from London in the UK. And I'm the author of a book called Discovery of Less. Uh, as well as that, I'm also a coach, which I coach people during their career transitions, executive coach, simplicity coach, as well as a speaker. So um, I talk a good game as well, <laughs> as well as write a decent one too. So yeah, so I go out and speak in, in, uh, in corporate settings, organisations, at, at festivals and public events too. And that's the kind of bit that we're going to be talking about today, Bill, but also I do like to throw in that I used to be an ex-R&B and hip-hop DJ, um, and I used to be, I used to, you know, right? Uh, I used to want to be in a band and play football, uh, as in soccer. And they're, they're the bits that we might not talk about too much on the podcast, maybe a separate podcast, but, um, but yeah, right now, author, coach, and, and speaker. That's tremendous. I really appreciate you sharing that additional... Uh, that additional part of you, right? The, the R&B DJ, the football player, the 
European football, not the not the yeah, U.S. Yeah, football soccer, player. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because I spent, as as we were talking about, I spent yeah. so many years in Europe, so I would have called it football too. I mean, I still I still even spell certain words in the British in the British spelling as opposed to the U.S. spelling, and it's primarily because when I was growing up, all of my curriculum was was British. Um, so, for example, the word behavior I still spell with a U, and people say, "Well, why is that?" And I said, "Well." By the time I came across the word behavior in in textbooks, I was already in the I was already in Europe, and so all the curriculum and all the textbooks were spelling it that way. So it was sort of put into my mind that way. Um, and so yeah, I'm a, I'm kind of an amalgamation of European culture and and U.S. culture. So Dude, I very much appreciate mix. it. You're a super mix. Um, and the thing is, right, funny enough, I had I sent out some drafts of Discovery of Less to a, a couple of. Um, American readers that were um, subscribed to my website, which is lessisprogress.com, and they sent me back a load of spelling errors, which were the UK-US version. So colour, behaviour was one. Um, Realise. Yes. Uh, route, route. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, lots of different things came back, and I was like, oh, wow, I've, I've really messed up here. I've, I have got my spelling so wrong, and I looked for it, and I was like, Oh no no, <laughs> it's just a different. Just way. change change the dictionary in in the Microsoft Word there to UK versus US, and it's all good. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I would love to jump in to to talk about this whole less is is progress um, and the discovery of less. You sent me the book uh, to kind of do a pre read, uh, you know, before we we chatted today. And there's a couple things that I zeroed in on. I would love to just read a particular. Uh, paragraph here that really jumped out to me just kind of where we're at in the world right now you and I are connecting you know kind of midweek it's been really busy for both of us for different reasons and and as I was kind of rereading in the let's go so you know chapter kind of the very beginning portion this one particular part stood out to me that I highlighted and if it's okay I'd love to to read it out loud to not only like speak power to it but let others hear it and then we can reflect on it so um, the paragraph reads the work-life calendar always looks stacked and we've all made the choice somewhere down the line to determine that busy just doesn't cut it anymore so we proclaim to be super busy anything to foster the appearance of if we're super busy we must have significance purpose it's a lie (laughs) you only read that because you're really busy today (laughs) <laughs> that's why it would have been another paragraph if you would have been like had loads and loads of time off <laughs> probably yeah um but i'd love to pick up right there with those three words well maybe four if you with the with three with the contraction it's a lie yeah that's a bold statement to make there and that's what really resonated with me it just sort of jumped off the page and i wanted to high five it and say yes so <laughs> could you tell me like the courage it took to write that, yeah. make that statement, and and frankly, why why it resonates so much now? Yeah, um, I've I've been having similar conversations recently with people that are, and you you can choose your type of word stacked, a um, hundred miles an hour, and when did a hundred miles an hour become the average speed limit for us all, right? Um, and everyone who wanted to kind of do something different. And, and you know change course or you know fulfill an ambition or an aspiration couldn't do it because they were too busy and I was caught up in that 
I was one of those people that, you know, couldn't do the thing like go travelling because I put too many blockers in the way and I became really, really busy because I felt that um, the more I did, the more I would align to what society's version of success is because we're all brought up to let to believe that the more that you own, the bigger title you have, the more successful you are. And so I went along that route and and found that it worked for a certain period of time before I then started to realise that I was really bored and starting to get burnt out and have loads of stuff happen to me where I wasn't in control of anything. And so, and so yeah, and so I, see it, I saw it in myself and um, basically I'm talking to myself in, in that part where I'm saying it is a lie because I used to tell everybody how busy I was. And all that did was just compare, you know, it almost confirmed the fact of the place that I wanted to be, which was important. So I did more because I was wanted to be more important to others. And after I realised that actually that didn't really matter at all. It was just my own importance that I needed to be aware of. And so, so yeah, Bill, it was a case of doing more equaled success but I found that actually doing more just took me down a path I didn't want to be and didn't want to go down yeah I mean I think it's it's such a courageous and bold conversation to sort of start with yourself because I think a lot of us in in our world and I think the pandemic has shown us this and I've talked with a lot of guests about this 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 ability for us to say the stories we told ourselves are false and um, we, we subscribed to a model that frankly has proven time and time again that it doesn't really work. Yeah. But it does, it does require you to, as you talk about, declutter. <coughs> yep. It requires you to unsubscribe. <laughs> and it requires you to, to really kind of be still in your own thoughts, in your own makeup, and in your own hopes and wishes. And one of the things I've noticed is that the the busyness is actually sort of kidnapping our agency and so when you do step back and say i wish i had more power um, i wish i had more agency well the only way you actually get that (laughs) is by putting these things down getting rid of these things declining things i had this great discussion with a colleague of mine last week and they said that going forward they were either going to be and accept the meeting or decline the meeting. They are no longer going to do that sort of tentative in between mm-hmm. thing we do. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because they always felt the pressure of, well, I have to tentatively accept it for two reasons. One is I actually want to stay informed when the meeting changes, right? Because there's that, there's that old trick of that if you decline it, you don't get the updates. Yeah. So a lot of us are like, well, I, I can't make it. But I want to stay informed. Yeah. And then there's this other piece, which is um, I feel so important that I must have it all over my calendar. And it was really interesting, Chris. It was a fascinating exercise because there's some analytics tools you can now see in things like Microsoft and others that actually show you the percentage of meetings that you've accepted, declined, and, and those that are tentative. And just to, to test this out, I went and looked at it, and I was astonished that I had um, 
tentatively accepted 157 meetings in the past month. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Now, what it tells me is I, too, was trying to be in multiple places at multiple times. Yeah. I was trying to stay engaged. And, and when this colleague said to me, he's taking a new path, he's either declining or accepting, and that's it. Now, when he declines, he declines with the setting of, I'm not going to be there. I'm telling you I'm not going to be there, so please don't wait for me to start the meeting. Um, and here's how you can get in touch with me if you have other questions. Or I'm accepting and I'm all in and I'm present in the yeah. moment and I'm not trying to do anything else. Yeah. And I that, that kind of stood out to me as like that's almost a corporate version of decluttering. 100%. And um, I use, you know, although the, the topic of the book is around like, you know, decluttering your home life and a lot of mental clutter and you know digital declutter of the phone and emails and things right. like that. With this minimalist mindset that you can get, um, you can take it into your corporate setting or into your work life. And and I've I've been doing that for for a few years now. And that example that you've just given there, Bill, is um, is really 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 good and actually really common as well. And it's a thing I like to call calendar Tetris. Yeah, and me and you are similar ages, so we know what Tetris so, is. Yes, so um, we probably had the Game Boy, the really big fat one, um, yeah, and probably the only cartridge that came with the original console. Correct. What do you want to call that? Or, um, yeah, console. Yeah, and yeah, so Canada Tetris is a game that I like to kind of highlight to people: Are you winning or are you losing, or does it matter? <laughs> um, and that whole accept decline thing by your colleague I think is is great and I think you you know you touched on things there around what lies underneath all of that yeah you know it's that FOMO versus JOMO you know I want to be informed why because if I mm -hmm. miss out on a bit of information does that mean I'm excluded from the conversation right do I need to be there um, is it the most important thing that I could be doing at that time um, you know is there any even even an agenda been sent out sometimes I get invites and it's just all oh, there's nothing there and sometimes right. I have to go well, what are we talking about for mm -hmm. an hour um, and even with the when we use the, you know the software that we use now which is uh, which is amazing but sometimes we just take the off-the-shelf package and go with the default so all meetings right. are either half hour or an hour or, yep. or a version of that Right, so uh, I think even the uh, the office suite that I use now even encourages to you to finish at five two. Correct. Yep. yep. Because we couldn't do it ourselves, nope. so Microsoft had to do it for us. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and so, so yeah, I always try and you know, conf you know, to try and challenge senior leaders and executives, especially around you know, make your meeting forty five minutes. You know, if right. it was an hour, see if you can knock off 25% off your time and get stuff done, you know, and, right. and give yourself a bit of time back and rather than go back to back to back to back to back. Because when, when do you go to the toilet? Uh, when do you eat? Exactly. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's interesting you, you bring that up, Chris, because I've, I've talked about this with a lot of colleagues and friends. You know, we used, we, we'd think, okay, we work from home now. And you say, oh, I can just run over and grab something to eat. But there are times that I'll be home 
and my partner's kind of like, hey, you ha- have you haven't eaten anything, and you're going on like eight hours. Yeah, and but, they're, but they're mouthing it to you because you're on a call. Correct, because you're on a <laughs> camera call, and they're yeah. like, and and there was a point at one at one point a tray of food was put next to you, but you didn't eat any of it because you're on camera, <laughs> and yeah. you know, and then there's that whole balance of can I go off camera, and if I'm off camera, do people think I'm listening? or paying attention, or are they judging me that I'm not, I mean, there's so much wrapped into this, right? I mean, that's where you talk about the digital, the digital decluttering is really interesting. Um, there's a book that I that I also read by an author that I, I know you're familiar with, um, Greg McEwen, yeah. um, Essentialism. And it was such an interesting book that came into my life at the time that it did. I was traveling back and forth um, between clients on planes, this is pre-COVID, um, every week. and my godmother had given me the book, recommended it to me. She had read it. Um, I think a group of principals of um, Catholic schools had read it. She said, I think you got to read this. And one of the greatest parts of that book that really just kind of struck me was there was a, an illustration that Greg had put in the pages, and you probably recall this, where you know, you've got this um, one point, and he's drawing lines kind of from the point, and so much of what we do in work and life and the world um, is all about like, here's where I'm at and here's where I want to be. But his illustration was so simple because what it showed was if you start at point A and you move over to point B on a single line and that's the only line you have to focus on, you can get there. You can get to point B. But beside that, he had the illustration that showed the center point or point A and many lines, almost like a star formation. And his point was, look at how many of these lines you've done, but you've really made it nowhere. Yeah. Like your destination point is still over here. You've made it no closer because you're doing all these offshoots. And it just woke me up and it said, <laughs> no wonder I feel frustrated. No wonder I haven't got any sense of going anywhere because I keep doing these, I keep saying yes to all these things. And his, his concept of get to know your sacred yeses and get to know your sacred noes. And I've just completely woven that into my framework. And I've encouraged other people as well. You have to get to know your sacred yeses and your sacred noes. Those lists can change. I would probably hypothesize that your sacred noes wouldn't change that much. Your yeses maybe, but your noes are probably gonna be pretty solid. And I think what's interesting is it took me being 30,000 feet in the air with a book to have that eureka moment and I think in your journey and your story, as I've understood it, you know, when you were planning the trip to Myanmar, or Vietnam with your partner, and there's a part in the book where you talk about opening up the Google Doc, the spreadsheet, <laughs> and you've got all the columns and all the tabs, and you're now like 27 tabs into this, and you've actually not put any sort of content in it to get started to move from point A to point B, and you just step back and you're like, Okay, well, I've now thought through 29 different scenarios, <laughs> yeah. but I'm no closer to Myanmar or Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly it. And it's, you know, sometimes it's the path of least resistance or it's the, the thing over there, you know, point mm-hmm. B of what you're saying. You know, when we get there, or the, you know, the actual journey to get there, it reveals more of ourselves that we're probably not ready to receive yet. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Going traveling or going to Myanmar, going to Vietnam was scary mm-hmm. because they were places I'd never been before. So it was almost like it was unknown territory. Yeah. Um, 
didn't know anything about it. I knew it was going to cost a lot, and I knew it would potentially, you know, this is all made up stuff in my head, but I thought, oh, it's going to put me back in my career. If I take a sure. break, I'm going to miss out on stuff, which mm-hmm. is all false. Um, but yeah, doing that thing reveals the parts of you that actually you're scared to release, scared to, mm-hmm. you know, scared to really look into. Um, you know, things like you know, putting myself into different cultures for long periods of time mm-hmm. that I would be uncomfortable in. You know, staring into that, I was like, yeah, so, um, you know, if I can put this off a little longer, right. then I won't have to do the thing. Uh, or it won't have to be real. It can always be a dream, and I can create this dream to be really positive and really mm-hmm. amazing. But there might be, you know, there might be negative or comfortable bits when I get to point B. Mm-hmm. And of course there was, but the overarching view is that my growth and experiences grew, you know, exponentially because of going to point B. Right. And, and I yeah. think and I think that's also the place where those sacred yeses and sacred noes make themselves known. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, imagine for you in your story going to Myanmar, going to Vietnam you know, traveling to a place that you've not been to before and be it in the East or the West, you're actually affording yourself for the first time the opportunity to see what bubbles up in you. 100%. And then it becomes very clear, like, what is important to me and what is not? Um, you know, the, 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 the part in the book that I, I enjoyed at the beginning was when, when you describe heading into town to meet with, was it Amanda? Yeah, yeah, my boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah your That's boss. That's not her yeah. real name, by the way. Um, I understand that. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> I was like, names change for the innocent. Um, yeah. But there's you describe it so vividly, the sense of you're going to go have this discussion with a boss to essentially go on a sabbatical, which was kind of the beginning of your journey um, of, of change. And you can tell, I mean, reading this this portion of the book, like, I got fluttery. Like I was nervous. Really? Oh, that's absolutely. <laughs> like reading it, I'm like, okay. When when you do the whole double check, triple check of what's in your pockets, you know, I've got everything I need to do. Do I run for the train? No, I don't run for the train. I take this train every day. Well, what if today is the day the train's early? What if the today is the day that it's crowded? What yeah. if? And you know, there's that uh, there's that part where you talk about everything that you need prepared, and then you realize you've you've forgotten your badge. Yeah. To get to get it to work, right? <laughs> that wasn't wasn't the only time that happened, but um, right, yeah. <laughs> and and it's it's such a beautiful example though because it, life reminds us that we can we can prep all this stuff, we can do all this stuff, and then sometimes the one thing that you need to get you hey in the door, man, you got yours, right? Yeah, the one thing that you need because case in point, how many times have I actually forgotten this badge? Because I've probably been in the office, I don't know five times in 2021 (laughs) so like where first of all where is this thing in a drawer somewhere um but i love the way you described it because you knew that what you were about to do was have a conversation with a a boss yes it was a career conversation but you knew it was a conversation that no matter how it went your life was going to change from that point on and the way you you describe it the way you kind of weave your way through the city to get to where you're going to meet her in a pub and 
it's like I felt all the tension and I was like, oh, what if what if it doesn't go as expected? And then it actually went quite beautifully where your boss said totally support this. And the minute she said, I totally support this, you immediately had FOMO. Yeah. You were like, this is so great. I can't wait to plan this. But what am I going to miss out on? How are they going to do this without me? What am I going to come back to? And I think it was really it was really delicate the way you described that because you didn't gloss over the discomfort coming from both those places. You knew there was discomfort about taking on this new journey with your partner and going to places you've never been before. And there was discomfort of like, I'm not, I'm never going to be the same. I'm not coming back to the same job. I'm not coming back to the same people. I'm not coming back with the same mindset. Um, And reflecting on that, I think it's really powerful for people to read that because we're talking now amongst the great resignation, right? There's all these articles that are happening, capturing this whole piece. You came back from the sabbatical, and I think as you described, as I listened to one episode of a podcast, you were in, at work at 9, and by 9.30 that morning, you had resigned. Yeah. <laughs> Is that accurate? Uh, yes, true, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Talk about that, because that's amazing. Like, Yeah, I'd, <coughs> I'd, uh, I'd already kind of made my mind up that uh, <coughs> I wanted to do something different. Um, but there's always that weird period between leaving your current job and starting your new one whether that's a notice period or you know there's a bit where you just work the extra month or so just to get that last paycheck and then off you go um and so yeah i i went back into the office and the best best bit about it was seeing those seeing my team because i haven't seen them for such a long time and we got on really well So, yeah, it was seeing those guys, but then the reality hit was like, oh, my sti- it's my old seat, <laughs> mm-hmm. my old computer, the same login details, mm-hmm. um, everything was just back where I had just come from, where I wanted to re- escape from. Right. The longer I stayed there, the more higher risk that I would have been pulled back in. Oh, Chris, yeah. can you just stay an extra week? Cause we've got this project. and Or, you know... Can you, actually, can you help us bring in your replacement? You do the interviews. You do. Um, and so, I, yeah, I just needed to get out as, as quickly as possible. And then it wasn't because the company, the people, the job was bad in any way. Actually, it was really good. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't good for me anymore. It you had, had changed. It, exactly. It had served its purpose to a point, And I needed to jump off. So there's this thing called the S-curve that... Um, Whitney Johnson talks about and she's mm-hmm. endorsed the book bless her but I don't know she's how. great yeah and you know I, that was a real coup <laughs> for me to get mm-hmm. her to endorse that because she's a you know a real great thought leader around disruption and um, she has this thing called the S-curve where you know once you start something new whether that's a personal professional thing you start at the bottom and then as you get more acclimatized to the thing you rise up and then you tail and you start to reach a peak. And it's mm-hmm. when you reach a peak is at that point where you are, it's the best for you to jump off and start right. a new S. Yeah. Right? And so what I had done is obviously gone up the S and then gone back down again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I think, you know, going back to that great resonation thing, I, you know, I think a lot of people have done that, you know, because yeah. they've reached their peak. And rather than doing the scary thing of jumping and learning all again, it's like, well, that was really hard to do that. I'm quite mm-hmm. happy where I am. I'm staying in my comfort zone. And then you go back down the slide. 
Right. Um, and then what I'm finding now is that the, the clients that I'm coaching is that they know that things are never going to be the same after what we've all been through. Right. Companies are going to downsize. Jobs are going to change. Um, you know, jobs that were there two years ago may be automated. But actually, mm-hmm. we can't see that far ahead to know what new job titles are going to be just yet. So people are really right. kind of a little bit anxious around what is next. But because they didn't jump at the top of their S curve, mm-hmm. they've niched, they've specialised yeah. for so long. And jumping off an S curve or jumping anywhere is super scary. Right. Uh, and so overwhelming that it might be really, really difficult for some people. And I did not want to be one of those people and I knew mm-hmm. that it was going to be tricky and I wanted to be I wanted to try and be the new guy again yeah but, you know going through that experience of being new and having that imposter syndrome has you know gives me basically it gives me more material that I can use to help others sure um, but yeah I've got to my B point now where mm-hmm. it's where I wanted to be um, so I wonder what I jump off to next. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, I mean, it's so interesting when you talk about that visual. It's so powerful to think about the S-curve and where you jump at the apex, right? Like you you should jump when you've got that that height because it allows you to actually jump further or jump and reach something else as opposed to going down the slide and having to make that climb again. And then yeah. I think the other piece that kind of really stands out to me is this element of sometimes you actually have to change your entire perspective, be it location, be it um, type of work. Um, the imposters in piece is, is another really important foundational element that you shared. You know, it's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. And one of the things I think the pandemic has done is kind of a great reset to very much of what this imposterism or some people might call it imposter syndrome i try not to call it imposter syndrome because that actually makes it seem like there's actually something wrong with a person and that's not the case at all um so imposterism is is what i typically refer to it as but i was reminded you know when we were all sort of facing this thing we've never faced before that you know the the guidebooks that were written 20, 30, 40 years ago that people probably would turn to in adversity and say, well, this is what we should do because on page 96 it says you do this. None of those worked. And as you think about organizations that were even trying to do budgeting planning, right? Like how do you plan the 2021 budget when you're sitting in 2020 and you're not even sure who your customers are going to be. You can't just take 2019's budget, <laughs> dust it off, <laughs> and say, here you go. So everybody, all at the same time, had to struggle with the sense of imposterism. And I think in some in some way, it was the great equalizer. Because no longer was I on calls with people that said, well, you haven't been in banking for 20 years, so you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Instead, I would say, no, actually, I haven't been in banking for 20 years. Um, but as of yesterday, the banks don't even know what they're doing to keep keep things afloat. So you and I are kind of in the same, <laughs> we're, yeah. all, we're all starting yeah, yeah, yeah. from like this level. Yeah. So how about we honor each other's different ideas and come to it? Because in some cases, even if you think about the t- 2008 um, financial crisis, right? I would argue that it was the 20, 30 years of 
status quo that got us in that problem in the first place. Yeah. So I might actually honor people who have not been in those industries to say, what is your idea? What idea do you have? Bring me your thought because we've got to try something. And and that that makes me think very much of the way you wrote this book, right? You had the opportunity as, as it came to you to do things differently. There's the path of traditional publishing. You chose to go the more self-publish. Yeah. And it seemed like it was because it was true to you and it felt more like you were honoring your own journey. I think there's no greater imposterism that people face than being an, a writer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or even calling myself that. Yeah. So, well, I've got your book literally in front of oh, me. So sir. you are a writer yeah. and you're a published <laughs> author. I'm actually working on two novels myself and I struggle with that all the time. Um, so I would love to maybe talk a little bit about that sense of, you know, you've done the work, you've battled, we all, we all battled the imposters and we're still battling it, but what does it feel like a little bit on the other side, having self-published, having stepped away from a corporate job you did for nearly two decades yeah. and come back to the world and said, I'm a different person, I'm going to jump at the apex of the S-curve, mm. even if I don't know what I'm landing to. How does that feel? Good question, mate. Um, you know, it feels really, really refreshing um, mm. because if I've I've plugged myself into different situations and contexts now with my new experiences and new knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I offer is a completely different perspective of ways of living and ways of working. Mm-hmm. And even this morning, you know, I had a, I had a, a coaching session, and and the lady said to me, "I don't, I've, you're the first person in in 22 years that thinks in a slightly different way." And I'm like, yeah. "Have you been speaking to the same people for 22 years?" Like, that's in terrifying. my head, I'm like, "Well, it's not that <laughs> radical," um, right. but it still is, I think, because you're not supposed to disregard and ditch and sell and donate the majority of the things that you've built up mm-hmm. over time you're not supposed to do that right according right. to society that we know you're supposed to collect mm-hmm. it all and then you live your life and then you die and then you leave everything to friends or family that's basically the, the what you do right but um but to kind of shift all of that and almost change your identity is really difficult and but plugging this new identity of coach writer speaker you know having this weird growth mindset and having all this travel experience so i do put on my cv by the way bill <laughs> good <laughs> because good. i always like if i if i was to interview someone i'd be like where have you been yeah you know, what different experiences have you have you had mm-hmm. that are going to add value into my team yeah because i don't want another person like the four others I've already got. I want mm-hmm. diverse thinking. Um, I want to avoid the group think. And group think is everywhere at the yes, moment. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And so because I took a sabbatical, because I left a, a successful career, um, I have now got all of these stories that others don't necessarily have. And they're unique to a certain degree and they add value to people's lives and that's one of the things that I found the most beneficial is not 
being a writer or being a speaker or being it, it's the stories that I've had in my own journey that I can now share to help others. Right. Hence why going on your, you know, your podcast and having the book come mm-hmm. out is that not to, you know, not to be a successful published author because, to be honest, you don't make any money with books. Right. <laughs> right? But it's to share the story and it's, you know, what we were talking about earlier is almost like that heart fuel, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know, it gives me energy to continue to help others and, you know, to hear, to hear, you know, amazing stories that people have gone on and challenged themselves to do other things and based on a story that you've given, you know, or a, mm-hmm. an experience that you've shared, it just adds so much value to me. Mm-hmm. and to others and we'll keep being that ripple effect and you know with this podcast as well bill you'll keep having this ripple effect you know two three four yeah. years down the line when people revisit the back catalogue mm-hmm. and they're like wow this is still relevant or i hadn't thought of it that way yeah and then you absolutely. know ideas will sit with people and an opportunity might pop up which might not have been there before mm-hmm. so um so yeah i am fully embracing it all now and uh, just using all of these weird and wonderful experiences of decluttering and having this minimalist mindset to help others now yeah i mean i so appreciate one of the things that i i like i really enjoy about the way you've told this story is it feels very storyline it feels story like it you you can tell that you come from a long line of storytellers like that's part of who each of us are is the ability to captivate attention but also inspire action really comes in storytelling and and it i think it's intentionally written this way it doesn't feel like a business book well no it's and, and that's the thing i i did know i failed english at school so that was one of the story that i would tell myself is that i can't write to any significant length because teachers mm. have told me that i can't right or when i was 16 i wasn't able to write a good essay on the handmaid's tale mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, which I spelt wrong, by the way, but please, that's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so all of these stories that I told myself that I couldn't do it um, were just exactly that. They were just stories. Um, and rather than can tell myself full stories all the time, I thought I'd tell some funny ones instead um, about you know getting rid of my Saved by the Bell t-shirt and things like that. <laughs> but use the humour in a, in a way where that I, I didn't see that much in the kind of minimalist slash decluttering slash simplicity mainstream community which is very very much US driven yes. um, and I get a lot of value from uh, from US minimalists and declutterers uh, but I felt that there was a need not just for uh, someone with a Cockney accent to come out and talk about it but I think the, the way the, the British approach the relationship to stuff it's slightly mm-hmm. different because we have certain traditions and, and you know about we had this thing called Sunday Best where we would only get the best cups and saucers out on a Sunday right. uh, and use them and you know the cutlery and the plates and things like that and similarly you know in various cultures when people would wear their best clothes to church or you know to, mm-hmm. you know to go to fa- and and I was a bit like well is that that old tradition is that still there or can that now be evolved and moved on? Right. And so why do we continue to kind of hoard our, our belongings? And, and I you know, found that 
having a little bit more humour underneath it all made the whole thing a lot more easier to talk about. Mm-hmm. Especially with people, with, especially my parents, mm-hmm. where I'm staying at the moment. You know, if I was to talk to them about getting rid of decluttering things, it would it would be a horrible conversation. Right. And as people will find out in the book, you know, I almost go back into their world and realise how much stuff they had kept. They accumulated, yeah. And, and you know, because they didn't know any better. You know, it's their generation too. Their generation, right. and, you know, that was their um, that was their display of success, display of keeping things because of the sentimental value and the attachment they had to it, even though it was in the corner collecting dust and you know, or even right. broken. And mm-hmm. and so yeah, but putting a putting a, a layer of humour and lightheartedness onto all of it just makes it uh, a little bit more fun. A little more approachable. And I think, you know, it's it's such an interesting reminder of even history, right? If you think about our parents, well, their parents were of the Depression era, right? So you think about what your parents learned from their parents. Yeah. And if their parents were in that era of the Depression, then things actually had significant meaning because yeah. it meant that you were okay. It, it was not only on display, but it was a reminder to you that you were not uh, forced to make ends meet. Um, and and we sometimes are not even aware that those traditions or those traumas, because some of it is trauma-based, yep. are passed on generation to generation. And what's really fascinating, and even in my own story and my family, my brother actually did something very similar to you, but it was the impetus was completely different. He actually went on an, an on an ancestral pilgrimage wow. back to Ireland and Germany to understand where we came from. Have you interviewed but him in on your podcast yet? I have. In fact, he did two episodes. It's a two episode special because the story was so incredible. I'll make sure to send it to you to oh, listen to because you you would really resonate with it because his story starts off with exactly what you did, which is he quit his job, he packed up everything and sold it. He got on a plane and went to Ireland with no plan. Brilliant. He had nothing to come back to. He, he just, and it was terrifying. And he, he describes this. He describes the whole experience of the terror and the joy. And it, it reminds me so much about what he was uncovering was past family traumas that had led to a lot of the decisions and the things that we hold on to and the things that frankly people wanted to let go of but they didn't know how to. And what's really interesting is since his journey and his pilgrimage has evolved, there are people in now two generations, I think soon to be three generations, that are learning to let go of some things, physical and otherwise. And it just continues to evolve and be this amazingly generous story that is unfolding and he's turned it into a book that he hopes to finish here soon. But he's also like you going down the self-publishing route because he's done all this research and he's like, you know, it feels like this story is too sacred to turn over to a machine (laughs) to sit on for a year. Well, yeah, you know, you know, these things are real, these decisions you've got, you know, and I'm going to have a, um, a group session where I just invite people to who've 
almost engage with the book in any way to come and spend mm -hmm. an hour on Zoom with mm -hmm. me and I'll go through all the intricacies of what on earth was going on when I was writing this book and all the decisions mm -hmm. I've had to make and things like that. And so I'll get people together and I'll send some invites out and, and, and make it open to anyone, really. But but part of that was understanding my own values, similar, probably similar to your brother, actually, around... Yeah. This is this is my legacy almost, yeah. And who do I want? Who would I trust more to look after it? Is it me, or would it, you know, go it like you say, going into a, a machine? And I think the timing of it also was really kind of swung it for me because I did get mm -hmm. some offers around traditional publishing, mm -hmm. which I said no to, and um, it was due to timing as well because yeah. we are now kind of you know fingers crossed coming out of a pandemic where yeah. we've had to spend a lot of time indoors looking at the same old stuff that we've been surrounding ourselves with for so right. long and you know again i tried to make light of it even though we were quarantined and isolation and use you know those those types of words but we were basically best really best friends with an old dusty board game that we hadn't used for decades and so right. You know, when when we were telling ghost stories or when we were younger, we would keep things around us just in case the electricity went out, right? Mm -hmm. So we could bring the candles out and only then you could use your board games because it would be good then because we wouldn't have TV. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we wouldn't have the internet because everything would have shut down. And it was almost like, well, it's kind of happening now. Right. And so did you bring out the board games? Did you read the books? Did you read the books that you know you promised that you when you know when I get a bit of time indoors, I think I'll sit down in my little cubby and I'll read this book. And you know, did we do it? Because that was the time. That was what we were waiting yeah. for. Right. And we probably didn't. <laughs> so, so, what does that mean? Does that mean that actually you're going to use that book again when the next time the next global pandemic happens? Has there got to be something even more? You know, a, a bigger event for us to kind of use the things that we've cherished and loved, or you know, pretended to cherish and love so much, but never used. Um, and so it was almost a little bit of a disruptive challenge to mm -hmm. to readers. And I thought the power of having that message come out now yeah. would have been a lot more, like a lot more powerful than it had it come out in twenty twenty four. Yep. When, Absolutely. You know, when we've everyone's got a hybrid car or an electric right. car, and, you know, and everything's moved on, and right. stu you know, and stuff, other stuff is happening then. Um, and so yeah, so I thought, you know, let's let's get it out now. I can be the owner of my own destiny to a certain degree. Your own agency, you took back your own agency. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, so yeah, so I do have. I've got like six copies of it. <laughs> That's my, awesome. Um, <laughs> So yeah, there's no there's no warehouse. It's print on demand, yeah. and so yeah, so I, yeah, made that basically made that choice. But it was my editor, um, who also kind of challenged me as well because he'd never worked with a self-publishing author before. Mm. He'd always gone traditional routes, and so his approach was well, okay. Well, these are the things we need to do, and I was like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, Not he's pulling from an old toolkit. Yeah, and so exactly what you were saying earlier. Um, about pretty much even you know even things maybe two three years ago might be out of date now 
or needs mm-hmm. to be refreshed at least. So um, so yeah, and uh, you know, good luck to your brother. Um, yeah, I mean, super excited for him, and it's been—I mean, it's been an honor to kind of tell that story or echo that story. And it was, you know, what's really unique about those two episodes. It was—it was two brothers just sitting down and talking, and it just turned into this incredible story that um, has touched a lot of people. It's actually yeah. motivated a lot of people to do what you're doing, which is. I'm actually going to put all this stuff away, sell it, and actually go do the thing I've always wanted to do. And to him, that is the heart currency we talked about, right? Him knowing that his story being put out in the world inspired, motivated, gave gave somebody that extra step to jump off the S-curve is is truly healing work. Um, And then people come back and say, my family has changed because I've done this. My relationships have changed because I've done this. It's it's really hard to put a price on that. You shouldn't, yeah. you, sh- you shouldn't be able to put a price on that because it's truly, it's almost magical. Yeah. 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 One last question I'd love to ask you. We're going to shift over to the DJ. Well, no, <laughs> the I was going to say, I was, I was like, is it going to be an E17 question? <laughs> it may not be an E17 question, but... Do we need to fill <clears> the listeners th- on, on that little inside joke? Um, we might need to, uh, yeah. to the, to the listeners. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to take, take, yeah. uh, take the honor? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Before we hit record on this, um, Bill and I were talking about music. So we both got, uh, you know, a lot of love for music and due to Bill's you know, upbringing, which if you've not heard his, you know, his, his journey, you know, listen to his journey. It's amazing. Um, and he only dropped one artist we didn't even get past this one artist, and he goes, and I'm a, one of the earlier things I listened to was E17. <laughs> and literally about two weeks ago, one of my best friends had got a LinkedIn request from Brian Harvey. If you don't know who Brian Harvey is, Brian Harvey was the lead singer of E17, which we all joked about on our little WhatsApp group. And then for the next two hours, all we did was do E17 puns back and forth to each other which was the highlight of my day so you know sitting in zoom meetings i would turn my camera off and put myself on mute have a little chuckle when someone goes uh love it where are you now are you in the house of love and i'll be like yeah i am actually it's all right everything is all right and you know and you threw deep deep down would you like to stay another day exactly right and so you know that was uh, the little inside joke that we had that we probably thought we'd share with you I appreciate that that walking through the musical history. Um, but yeah, the last question I'd love to ask you kind of as a DJ, because one of the things I think you hit on is the power of storytelling. And I would argue that DJs, by the nature of what they do, are incredible storytellers because you're essentially stitching together a story musically for an experience and a sensation of an audience. That said... You and I are of similar age, so we probably burned a lot of CDs. We might have even made a lot of mixtapes. Yep. Can you share one of your most memorable uh, compilations or <laughs> DJ experiences <laughs> oh, wow. that you had uh, to your to your memory and your recollection? It's certainly something we can follow up on. But as you were talking about it, like those are the moments I miss. I used to love curating mix CDs, mixtapes, because it requires curiosity and empathy and understanding of who the audience is. And I think you've done a lot of that in your work and your storytelling. And I would just love to hear that from the perspective of 
the younger Chris, who was the R and B DJ as well. Oh mate, uh, we, I need, there might need a part two for this. <laughs> there might need to be. I'm okay with that. Um, um, I think there's a few bits that that spring out for me. They go around doing it for me, and doing mm-hmm. it for love, and doing it for others. D- doing it for me bit I vividly remember when I got my first car mm-hmm. um, which actually wasn't my car at all it was my mum's car which I was allowed to drive just after I passed my test so we were probably looking at about 1997 1998 mm-hmm. it was a one litre Daihatsu Charade oh, wow. it, was like, it was like a it was a really compact little uh, box car yeah yeah pretty much um and it only had a tape deck in it, mm-hmm. and so the, the draw, you know, having your independence and being able to drive when you're a teenager um, is huge anyway. Mm-hmm. But then being able to make a a tape of your favourite tunes was probably the second best thing. And so I made two tapes yep. of Bad Boy Records uh, hits. So I basically okay. had. Notorious B.I.G., Puff mm-hmm. Daddy, Locks, Mace, Black Rob, Faith Evans, oh, wow. 112, all my favourite tracks on like a 90 minute tape. Yeah, I even put some interludes on there. So again, <laughs> I might be yeah, ageing myself here, but there used to be an th- interlude on the Puff Daddy record called The Mad Rapper, oh, yeah. and it used mm-hmm. to go across various different albums, and it was awful really, but you know, I even used those to kind of fill it out a bit as little separators between the tracks so yeah that was for me so whenever i drove i had um you know 112 only you mm-hmm. or you know my money my problems or whatever it was playing um the second one i always remember is um probably my last dj set mm-hmm. which was uh, probably three or four years ago and it got really quite late into the night and I'd gone really into like the old school hip-hop type stuff. Mm-hmm. And I put on LL Cool J mm-hmm. and doing it. <laughs> yep. And the whole place just went mad. And I was looking at people because I, what I tend to do is that I will hit play and sometimes I'd need to go to the toilet so I'll literally try and hit play and take headphones off run to the toilet and mm. come back but what I did this time is I hit play took my headphones off and I went and walked around the dance floor and, yeah. and I almost like got an opportunity to dance with the people that I'd been watching yeah. all night and they knew all the lyrics Yeah. Um, and so this big group of strangers were just enjoying that particular moment courtesy of LL Cool J mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it was literally only like ninety set, you know, ninety minutes, not ninety minutes, like a minute and a half mm-hmm. uh, before I then went back onto onto the decks and started to mix the next track. But yeah, that was one. I always remember that one. That's got to be pretty remarkable because, as you describe it, it's like the opportunity for an artist to jump into their painting. Yeah, yeah. That's rare that that happens where a DJ gets to step off the platform and go feel the frequency of the people that they literally just created this experience for um, and and kind of the vibes. And I imagine it's very similar to, 
an artist when they're performing and they sing and they stop singing and the crowd sings back. back to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, I get chills every time I see one of those, yeah, you know? it's mad. But there's um, also been a couple of bits, Bill, where it has gone horribly wrong. Um, oh, I've had, no. <laughs> I've had, I was, you know, I've done a couple of weddings where people got a little bit too ferocious and have knocked my decks. Oh, yeah. And um, so I, I was using uh, digital turntables at that time. And I must have pushed a button or something but one of the decks was turning in reverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, I don't know how I'd done it. And so I'd press play on the next track and it was going in, people, you know, people were listening to it. They were singing backwards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had like Stevie Wonder singing backwards, right? It was mm-hmm. so strange. Um, and I was like, I don't know how to fix this. So I literally just turned that one down and put deck A on. And uh, mm-hmm. what I did is almost, I almost hid. So I crouched down and I went on my phone. And I was like, what on earth is it? Like trying to figure out how to fix this thing. Oh, find the YouTube video. Yeah, yeah find a YouTube video. Or some, find a, a community. So it's like one in the right. morning. It's really dark. Yeah. And I'm looking at like Reddit communities. <laughs> trying to, has anyone hit the reverse button? And what is it? And it's like, right. I found it after about 10 minutes. And it was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was like control A or something. Sure. Something quite simple. But yeah, there's been... I've, done like um a couple for model agencies where i turned up and people were doing like catwalk shows sure yeah and there would be no audience mm-hmm. so the models would just walk up and down to no one like literally empty yeah. chairs <laughs> but i'd still have the music playing and so yeah right. there's been a f- there's been a few um non-fun times but i suppose yeah. they all add to the story in the end yeah, I, I just think it's such it's it's great to talk to someone that knows the magic of that curating the curating the music and bringing that together. I mean, as you were talking, I'm thinking about Warren G. I'm thinking about you know, uh, like you said, Mace. I think about like all those you know early days, especially of um, early days hip hop and R and B. You know, there was a there was a one of my favorite artists to this day of all time. Um, is an artist whose name is Tevin Campbell. I don't know if you recall him from the early 90s. He was from Texas. He was a child star. You well, probably I'm not remember. sure if I know him, but can we talk for a yes, minute? Yes, can we talk? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you I absolutely got it. <laughs> okay, there you go. So that was his second album, his first album. I this first smooth, heard the song. man. <laughs> what do you listen to? Uh, Green Day. What about you, Bill? Uh, Tevin Campbell, would you know him? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't know him, you better get to know him. How smooth you were you in school, man? I was I was I was a twelve year old living in Warsaw, Poland, and MTV was European MTV at the time, you probably remember that. And they played the video for Tevin Campbell's first single, which was Tell Me What You Want Me to Do. I now had he it on was a mixtape. I had it on yeah, a CD, you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the most incredible songs because that was his voice had not changed yet. So he was of that element where he could hit the really high notes. And I remember I became obsessed with that song, obsessed with that video. And at the time, because we lived in Warsaw, Poland, it's not like I could just cruise up to the music store in post-communist Poland and say, do you have Tevin Campbell, right? That's not how it worked. So I had to wait until we actually, that following summer, we drove to Ireland from Poland. We took a family trip to Ireland. 
and we were in the west of Ireland, so in Galway. Well, I went to the music store in Galway, and they said, we don't know who you're talking about, kid, you know? <laughs> and I'm so, like, eager that I'm standing in the music store trying to sing it to them, and they're like, yeah, we still don't know who you're talking about, you, you say, know? my love is always here for you, and they're going, right. are you, what are you talking about? Is this lyrics, <laughs> or are you actually <laughs> proclaiming something here? Right, to the, I to the Irish, probably the Irish bloke behind mm -hmm. the counter. So I end up going to Dublin, take a bus to Dublin, and there's a Virgin music store in Dublin. And I think this has got to have it because it's a Virgin mega store. It's mm. two stories in Dublin, right? I go in, sure enough, they have it. That was one of the first tapes I bought. And I played that tape till you could no longer see the print on the, <laughs> on the both sides of the tape, you know? You're a super fan. And Maybe I opened all of the- Maybe you on the, uh, on the podcast. Oh, that would be a dream. I mean, if you manifest that into the universe, Chris, like I would, I would bow out. I'd retire for life on that one because I've on been, I've been a fan of his since I was 12, and I'm now 43. So you, you I'll let people do the math. But um, there's no better feeling than when I got like that first tape, and then even when I got to CDs, and I had the opportunity to first get my CD. Of course, I knew the first CD I was going to get was Tevin Campbell's same album, because that had to be the first. That was my first tape. That was going to be my first. Um, CD and it was and um, I've been a fan ever since but yeah there's it's bringing back all these wonderful memories of TLC and salt and pepper Devin Campbell it just like yeah. you know Keith Sweat I mean like all <laughs> these <Sweat>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word I mean you are so, throwing out some names here mate um, yeah we could go down we could go down memory lane we should definitely do a, maybe a music part too and we'll we'll have DJ Chris on <laughs> yeah mate I think yeah I think you're right Let's see what the people want. But I mean, these things that we're talking about now is that the they're important to us, mm -hmm. and that, you know, there's a lot of music references in the book as well. Mm -hmm. So when people dig into it, you know, there's I think there's probably about at least a dozen milestones, yeah. which each have their own soundtrack because music yep. has such a, a poignant, uh, you know, almost like a you know a staple in my life. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit at the end in the epilogue, not to ruin the ending, don't worry about it. it the ending is, I get rid of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, happily ever after. Happily ever after, yeah. <laughs> um, but we, but, you know, my dad, uh, my mum and dad used to be in a band, mm. which is where all my music kind of love comes from. And so my dad was a drummer and my mum was a lead singer and they were in a group called Rainbow's End. And so their love for music was huge which is where i got mine from but so my mm -hmm. dad had a huge huge music music collection we're talking about loads of vinyls yeah. cds tapes all sorts but then as the family grew the places to store all of his love and collection were into the corners of the nethers home, yeah where <laughs> no one went Right. And obviously his music tastes change over time and the way he consumes music changed. So he now uses YouTube and Spotify and yeah. things like that. And so the question was, you know, whenever we would listen to an old track, he would be like, I've got that on vinyl. Yep. And I'd be like, okay. And he'd be like, it must be worth a fortune now. And I'm like, where are you getting this from? Just because yeah. it's old, it's worth <laughs> right. money. So he right. kind of used this thing where it's like oh it's if it's 50 years old it must be worth money mm -hmm. so i'd almost change i was like well let's prove it you know yeah so we pulled all the records out from the loft and he kept the majority of them in really really good condition 
and so sure. we were flicking through and there was some like we, it was like old 50s and 60s Motown stuff mm-hmm. and he would put it on and listen to it and he'd be like I don't even remember buying this or you know like, yeah. I'd, I've always hated this one or I love this one I was like well do you want to know how much they're worth and he was like well yeah let's let's find out and so I did a bit of research online and I found mm-hmm. a platform where you could just put the unique code into a database and it would pull mm-hmm. up the market value based on how many other people had sold that record and if no one had sold it it was clearly a little bit more rarer mm-hmm. so we picked out a few and I was like oh did you know that this one's worth 50, 50 quid and he was like let's sell it <laughs> see <laughs> and I was like so the most important thing for you now is you know for him at that time is that he hadn't they hadn't been on the holiday for years mm-hmm. so but they couldn't he couldn't afford it mm-hmm. but now all of a sudden the things that he never used and almost fell out of love with was that point B. <laughs> exactly. It was the holiday. It was like, if I sell my records, I can do something else. And yes, there was a lot of sentimental and emotional attachment, which you can read about in the book. But again, you know, we went through that journey together about what do these things mean to you now? Yeah. You know, back in the day, they were amazing. But you've got all the memories still and you've, yeah. and you've still got that love and I, I don't have that bad boy mixtape anymore right but i still have the love for the music yeah you, know, you you may or you may not have your tevin campbell cd or your tevin i don't CD. anymore in fact i was just going to tell you like <laughs> i was going to tell you like the i think back to the um the days i had to get rid of some of the cds and one of the ones i remember that I had a hard time parting with, that nobody knew any, like I couldn't give it to anybody, was Gary Barlow's first album, Open Road. <laughs> oh, mate, all respect is gone. We've made it over an hour. <laughs> over an hour we've gone, and then you threw out Gary Barlow. and it's just I mean, come on. He's talented. You can't, you can't deny that. He He's is, talented. But, I mean, at what age did you buy that then? You must have been 15 um, or 16, surely. I was 17. Old enough to know better. Old enough to know better. But, yeah, I was living in Eastern Europe. You can't hold that against me. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Maybe, the, there's a, you know, radio was maybe different at that time. I maybe. never bought a Take That album. I waited until he matured to become, you know, Gary Barlow. Because <laughs> I couldn't do that. I couldn't do the Take That stuff. Well, even I bought a Take That, you know, a couple of cassettes. Because, you know, you've got to respect to Take That has some amazing pop tunes. But Barlow on his own? I don't know. I mean, he's got—he's the only one with a voice. I mean, Robbie maybe, but Robbie just sounds the same on everything. Bill, what happened to this podcast, man? <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> we're definitely going to do a part two. I really—this uh, is a, a great way to end it. But yeah. I appreciate it. I know it's late there. I'm going to let you get going. I got to jump to my next meeting. But this was—this is the best meeting of my day, Chris. Oh, bless you, man. Likewise, man. Um, what an end to the uh, end to the day for me. And and thanks again for for doing all you do with your podcast and allowing me to come sure. on and, and share my story. And yeah, if people want to go and grab the book, there's a paperback, there's a Kindle version, just wherever you buy books online now, it's there. Um, and you can engage with loads of, there's loads of free stuff on lessisprogress.com as well. So I've, there's like a free workbook. So if people need a little bit of a leg up around, you know, getting started on decluttering their, home life or even their work life there's a few little hints and tips in there you can get for free and also you can get chapter one of the book for free 
as well. Awesome. Um, and and maybe if they're really good readers, they'll get to figure out where your Spotify playlists are and can subscribe wow. to some of your <laughs> <laughs> your curated playlists. <laughs> There's an incentive incentive to to buy book one. There's some Easter eggs in the book, and uh, yeah, mm. where I'll drip feed where my Spotify playlists are. But yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful night. And um, yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you.